You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program, and I begin with a bit of a beef about fish. Next week, I begin a vacation, and I am very fortunate that I will have access to a cottage. I am a, um, I am a renowned cottage moocher. I am. I should write a book about my cottage mooching exploits, but I, I've never owned a cottage, but I seem to just be able to just get myself to cottages. But that's another story for another day. I may drop a line in the water. You know, I like a little bit of fishing. My son's going to go with me. My nephews will be there. We're going to do a little fishing. So I'm a good citizen, and I think to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get myself a fishing license. So I check my outdoors card, and of course, if you know about doing any kind of fishing, any kind of hunting, any kind of thing you do in this province, you you need an outdoors card. It's a plastic wallet-sized ID card that's issued by the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. It allows you to hunt and fish. You can get by it for three years. I just I looked at mine about a week ago. It expired in the end of the year 2018, so it's expired. So I, I need another one. So... The first thing I do is what you do is I, I Googled it. And the first thing that comes up is actually a uh, result from 2016 that is no longer valid. So do not be careful with that. Make sure you go to the Ontario.ca if you're trying to do this. So then I go to the Ontario.ca. And it basically tells me this. that Here's how I get an outdoors card. I can get it online. So I try that. I uh, punch in the thing. Doesn't It says doesn't come up. Nope. Doesn't recognize my old card. Nope, sorry, can't do it online. You got to call this number. So then it gives me a number. So I tried that number. I get lost in just absolute voicemail, just Byzantine hell. Just, I can't get out of it. Have you a fishing license? So then it's, it says here at Participating Services Ontario locations. So I just happened to drive right past a Service Ontario location on my way to the studio every single day. So I leave a little early today, and I think to myself, I got this, I'm in the bag. Boom. So I go into the Canadian Tire. The Service Ontario is in the Canadian Tire. So already I'm just, you know, I'm itching to buy things anyway. I wait in line for 30 minutes. I get to the front of the thing, and the person says, "Uh, well, sir, this is not a participating Service Ontario location. You cannot get a outdoors card here. We cannot get you a fishing license at all. Here, why don't you go to the east end of Scarborough to a different service Ontario location to get it? No licenses, no permit. So what the province of Ontario and Service Ontario is saying to me is, please, go poach. Because this is ridiculous. If you're going to make it hard for people to do this, they're not going to pay. And I'm certainly not the only one in this boat. Now, I know I can get it from a local issuer up when I go up near the cottage. But I don't want to do that. I just want to go to the cottage. I want to put a... I got to put a worm on a hook. Catch a fish. But no. Do you know what? Maybe a giant joint might help calm me down. But wait. If you really want to be angry, try buying some weed in Ontario. As you heard in the news... More than 2,400 Ontario residents complained to the provincial ombudsman about the government's online marijuana store in the wake of delays and delivery problems. The Ontario Cannabis Store was the single most complained about government organization of the past fiscal year. I can't get any weed. I can't legally fish. It's making me upset. Did you hear this, that there is a new report out that says if we're 
older and richer were happier. This is true. So this report says, as I flip through my papers here, just ignore that sound in the background. Here it is. Uh, It's a new survey that says Canadians are happier after the age of 55 when they earn a higher income. Okay, that's under the duh. Uh, But this is interesting. Ontario participants were at the bottom of the list of this happiness index, with only 47% of us reporting a high level of happiness. Now, participants with higher incomes were also more likely to have a high happiness score, no kidding. But only 8% of people said that the state of their finances was the key driver of their happiness, on par with satisfaction with romantic relationships. That's what the study says. So, you know, cash or love. I'll take either one. Karen Lieberman is on the line. She's covering just an unbelievable story that is underway right now in Toronto, where a fertility doctor who was previously disciplined for artificially inseminating several women with the wrong sperm, is in front of the Ontario medical regulator today. Dr. Barwin has admitted to committing professional misconduct. He has given up his medical license, but yet is appearing before the college to decide whether or not his medical license would be revoked. And the difference there is that would alert other medical regulators if he was ever to apply to practice medicine in any other province. Karen Lieberman joins me on the line. Hi, Karen. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. This, the stories that I'm seeing on your Twitter feed coming out of this are just heartbreaking. You know, they really are, because this is the type of story that affects a person to their very core. It's your DNA. You know, you can't fight what's in your blood, what's in your body. And these are people who, you know, in their teenage years are now learning that their very existence is not what they once thought it was. And then for their parents, it's a whole other level of confusion and and feelings of betrayal and sadness and grief for many fathers who thought that they were the biological dads of their daughters and sons. They're learning that they are not. Um, it affects generations and generations to come. So it's so, the scope is just so enormous. You know, there's 51 people that are involved in this, but there could be countless more. Some people, one woman, in fact, who spoke today is a mother who conceived with the help of Dr. Barwin uh, in Ottawa, and she hasn't even been able to tell her daughter, who's a young teenager, that um, that her dad is not, in fact, her biological dad. She just thinks it's just going to just destroy her and doesn't even want to face it yet, and, and that is her choice. Um, everybody's dealing with this differently right now. Uh, but you're right, Dr. Barwin, um, he, he has pleaded no contest through his lawyer. He is not present today. He is a person who was awarded the uh, Order of Canada. I mean, this is a man who, you know, was considered the baby god for decades, was practicing in the nation's capital, and so many families are now affected by his actions. And so the college, Alan, this morning uh, did find Dr. Barwin guilty of professional misconduct for inseminating patients with the wrong sperm, including his own. The, uh, the doctor is failed to have maintained the standard of practice and has been found medically incompetent. Have we ever heard anything in terms of motive here? Was this just simple incompetence or something more malicious? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So he 
uh, when one when one young woman approached him about this, when she discovered a couple years ago through you know some DNA testing, some ancestry stuff that she believed he was her biological father, he didn't deny it. Um, he said to two patients that it was a, a, a mistake, if you will. He talked about having a sperm counting machine and that he used his sperm to sort of calibrate the machine and that's how uh, his sperm made its way into the patient's body. And that was just to two patients that he used that explanation, um, which as we heard, um, you know, counsel for for the College of Physicians and Surgeons referenced uh, a doctor, another well-known doctor actually, who we, we have spoken to on Global News, in fact, who was asked to kind of look into all this and he himself said, like, that makes absolutely no sense. Statistically, wouldn't be possible, not feasible, not reasonable, you know, all of the above. Karen Lieberman is a global news journalist who is covering this uh, hearing. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. Big Sidewalk news, of course, this week is Sidewalk Labs, which, of course, is owned by Alphabet, which is a sister company of Google, so get that in in place. Sidewalk Labs releasing that vision for a substantial new development on Toronto's eastern waterfront. And if Sidewalk thought that this plan that it would release would calm criticism, it has done precisely the opposite. Steve Diamond is the chair of the Waterfront Board of Directors, who says in a letter in reaction to this wider concept that has been pitched now by Sidewalk, calls the concept, quote-unquote, premature, also raises concerns that Sidewalk wants to be the lead developer at Keyside, and that requires government commitments on several key matters before proceedings. And some of this is just simply out of the hands of Waterfront Toronto. Now, the development, which could incorporate extensive surveillance technology, has also come under criticism because of privacy issues. And it's odd to say that I think that the criticism today is less about data and more about the fact that the initial plan here was a proposed 4.8 hectare site, the Keyside site, But now the plan, according to Sidewalk Lab, says that it needs the entire 77-hectare eastern waterfront district known as Villiers West. Here is Dan Doktoroff, who is the CEO of Sidewalk Labs on our morning show. Uh, What we're actually proposing isn't a whole lot more than that in reality. It's sort of that original 12-acre site plus one other site uh, called Villiers West, which is um, right uh, right nearby, that would be the home for a dramatically expanded Google campus, and we think sort of the hub of a urban innovation um, center. That is Dan Doktoroff speaking on the morning show on this radio station about the proposal that Sidewalk Labs has. Mr. Doktoroff leads Sidewalk Labs and was part of this extensive lockup with media where Sidewalk outlined its vision for the development of this area. Josh O'Kane is a reporter with the Globe and Mail and has been reporting extensively on Sidewalk and was in that lockup yesterday. Hi, Josh. 
Hey, Alan, how are you doing? Was this a bit of a bait and switch at all from Sidewalk to say, well, wait a second, you know, we can't do this one thing that we said we'd do without all this other much bigger chunk of land? you got to give Sidewalk Labs credit here where even in their original response to the request for proposals, they said, listen, we're gonna, we really want to try these new technologies, but... You know, this 12-acre lot, it may not necessarily be enough room to actually make this work if you're thinking about if they want to test adaptive intersections for, to adjust for different pedestrian scenarios. You kind of need a lot of intersections to make that work. Now, you, you can get that they understand they want that scope and scale. Now, the problem is the contract that they uh, had with Waterfront Toronto was really only for those 12 acres with the potential that if they hit certain goals, Yes, maybe we would consider you for future land. This basically says, well, we kind of want to do it all at once. It's not necessarily contravening the contract. It's just a much bigger ask that uh, not even Waterfront Toronto seems uh, particularly uh, happy about right now. And there is also, of course, the opposition within City Hall, the number of councillors saying that this just does not fly. Then there is the entire issue of the LRT. And bef- But before we move on for this, from this, this sort of answer that Sidewalk has that says, hey, right at the beginning, we told you this. We told mm-hmm. you that this is what we wanted. I want to play another bit of Dan Doctoroff this morning. with, And then, Josh, I want your response to, to what you're hearing here. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to that original RFP, it acknowledged right at the very beginning that in order to achieve the results that they were seeking, the demanding in terms of dramatic reductions and carbon emissions, new approaches to mobility... They even acknowledged at the time that it might take more scale than a 12-acre site. That is Dan Dogdorff speaking on The Morning Show, and Josh O'Kane from the Globe and Mail is on the line. And Josh, that kind of puts the ball back in Waterfront Toronto's uh, court to say, well, this is what you asked for, so why are you so surprised? I think we need to be very careful between asking for something or a request for proposals and then actually setting out an agreement, two of which have been signed so far between Waterfront and Sidewalk. I think Waterfront wanted a solution that might uh, fit in some way over the entire eastern waterfront, Uh, but what they had in the agreement was not that. It was step one of that, and that is why in my conversation as well with the chair of Waterfront, Stephen Diamond, yesterday, he referred to uh, this plan as aggressive. Uh, it is aggressive in certain ways, he told me, as well as there are certain parts where there are details, where there are gaps, where they're still waiting for more information at Waterfront Toronto. And that's why there's sort of, you can tell that there's a tension between the two organizations. Uh, no kidding. And, and, and the, the quote that really stood out for me from Waterfront is saying, well, there's a 1,500-page plan here, but yet there are still so many unanswered questions. Yeah, uh, there are certain questions. And Not only that, but this is now going to go for public consultations for six months, which is obviously a great thing. But they obviously wanted more details to take to the public, and there are certain concerns as well about uh, the asks uh, that uh, Sidewalk has, particularly around uh, rewriting some of the uh, uh, various municipal and Ontario laws to accommodate certain things, which, again, really interesting visions, right? They want to make those large, tall timber buildings, but... These are things that Waterfront Toronto is looking at and saying, well, we wanted to give you 12 acres uh, to, to play with and try something really interesting and innovative in. And, you know, we were considering uh, the opportunity to go bigger. And this is saying, well, it's kind of a, a go bigger, go home ask, according to the conversations that I've had with everyone. Yeah, and no kidding. It's go big in terms of the land, but also go big in terms of transit. No transit, no deal. I mean, they pretty much just 
said that. They pretty much came out and said, Sidewalk did yesterday, that without the extra land and without the LRT, it's not going to happen. Now here, I will play one more for you from Dan Doctoroff this morning, talking about opposition to his project. There are certainly people who have legitimate reasons to uh, oppose this. We've listened really hard. We've changed things. But the fact is, and it can't be disputed, that we competed in an RFP uh, to be the partner for Waterfront Toronto as their innovation and funding partner. And what we are doing is responding to what they asked for. We think it's all possible. That is the amazing Mm -hmm. thing. It's doable and feasible. Uh, and uh, it was all at the invitation of government. That is Dan Doctoroff, who is the head of Sidewalk Labs, a subsidiary of Google's parent company, Alphabet, speaking on our morning show. Josh O'Kane from the Globe and Mail, who covers this extensively, is on the line. Your reaction to what you heard there? I mean, it's this is kind of a... I really don't want to get into a he said, she said sort of thing. I think... What Sidewalk is saying is we wanted this all along, and Waterfront Toronto seems to be saying, well, we had an agreement that this would be more step-by-step. And uh, unfortunately, it does seem to get into a little bit of a he said, she said uh, issue. And what I think is going to come down to is I think we're going to watch some really interesting discussions down down at uh, City Hall about uh, whether this is something that uh, councillors and citizens want. And uh, within Waterfront Toronto, within their board, uh, of which Joe Cressy is a member, and he came out uh, against the extent of the plans. He had certain things he liked in their plans. Uh, but uh, I think there's going to be some really, really strong debates over, you know, is this what uh, we asked for as the public? Uh, and uh, how can we fit these kinds of solutions into city building? Joshua Kane is a reporter with Globe and Mail and has joined me on the line to talk about Sidewalk Toronto and Sidewalk Labs. If you're a betting man... And I, I know journalists hate this. You, you betting, man. What's the odds this thing goes forward after what happened yesterday? I think, I mean, listen, you put everything to public consultations. It's not necessarily going to look like what it did uh, when you first started. I mean, I think Waterfront Toronto has really said we have certain things we want out of this. Sidewalk Labs has demonstrated an eagerness to have a conversation with them. And you throw in the public consultations and we'll get something. But I don't know if it's going to look like every single one of the 1,500 pages of that agreement uh, that came out yesterday. Thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate talking with you. Thanks, Alan. You take care. I want to quickly move to uh, Messiah Jury, and what a great clip he had. I think this just makes everybody so proud, uh, not only of the way this country rallied around the Raptors, but doesn't this warm your heart when you hear this from Masai? For me, um, it's always been about Toronto. Um, uh, I love it here. Uh, my family loves it here. Um, my wife loves it, yeah, which is very important. Yeah, ain't that the truth, Ruth? Uh, and there, of course, have been reports that the Washington Wizards have asked or ponied up as much as $10 million to bring Masai to just say, look, come and take over our organization. Obviously, he is a hot commodity. So good to hear that sort of thing from him saying, this is where I want to be. And, you know, you just you hear him say that that night of the big win when he said, you know, we wanted to win in Toronto and we have won in Toronto. The other big question, of course, is the guy who we're all trying to leave alone and just chill a little bit. What's up with Masai? Here again is Masai. Jer- or, sorry, what's up with Kawhi? Hey, Kawhi, what's up with Masai? Masai, what's up with Kawhi? What's going on? 
Honestly, even if I didn't, I always feel confident. You know, like our organization feels confident, and we do feel confident that uh, he will. But Kawhi is his own man. You know, like he's shown us that since he came here. Yeah, no kidding. He is his own kind of guy. And I was watching the NBA Awards last night when, you know, did they, they just, and they played a kind of a recap of the year. And it ended, you know, the moment of the year ended not with the, the championship, not with him hoisting up the MVP uh, trophy, but the last bit of that recap of what a great season in the NBA was Kawhi with a laugh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was just amazing. Just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and the other thing that I found really interesting is, did you know this? That the last time an NBA Finals MVP wore New Balance sneakers on the court, that was 1988. That was when the Lakers won the over the Pistons in seven games. So that gives you a sense, because I don't know if you know this, but I'm a fun guy, rocks the new balance. That's the that's the sneak that he's wearing. But who was the guy in 88? James Worthy? Boom. Boom. I like that. Now, you know, new balance seemed to be, uh, in terms of a basketball brand, seemed like a faint memory of the past. That is until the company really won the sweepstakes and signed Kawhi in November of last year to relaunch its basketball division. And so now, you know, it's a niche brand, to say the least. But if you want to wear shoes that say, I am so chill, I am not checking the gram, I am not, I'm not posting anything, I'm not doing anything, I'm just, I'm a fun guy, I'm going to kick back and rock some new balance. I'm a fun guy. I'm still cheesed, and you know why? Have you a fishing license? No, I don't have a fishing license. And you know why I don't have a fishing license? Because the service Ontario, the giant service Ontario in my neck of the woods, is not a participating location in giving you an outdoors card or a fishing license. Are you stupid? Are you dumb? So now I, the government is forcing me to poach. That is essentially what is happening. I'm going away next week, uh, and I'm taking my son. And I'm, you know, I'm not a big angler. It's not my big. It's not my deal. But I thought maybe we'd throw, you know, we'll put a worm on a hook and catch a fish. But uh, it's the government is making it difficult to do so. I'm going to try and get a fishing license. I'll keep you updated on that. Uh, but you know what I enjoy? I really enjoy is a fish taco, a good fish taco. And you know where the best place to get a fish taco from is probably a food truck. Are food trucks still a thing? Food trucks are still a thing. But it, for some reason, this municipal government wants to somehow legislate them away. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk to a food truck owner who talks about how much money he has to pay in tickets to the city just to operate. And that the bureaucracy and the red tape is absolutely killing him and killing his business. So maybe you won't be able to get a fish taco. Let's talk about your job right now, shall we? Let's talk about the fact that every day you're getting probably a little older and you have to start thinking about your career 
And you know, you know what you need more than anything is to try and make an old fella happy. How do you, you do it? Just trying to make an old man happy. Well, to make an old man happy is you pay him more money, and you pay him more money before uh, he, you know, before he has to retire. So. Our next guest, Roy Ossing, is a writer for Globe Careers, a blogger, an educator, and an author. Roy Ossing is the author of the book series Be Different or Be Dead, and he's on the line. Roy, how are you? I'm fine, Alan. Thanks very much for having me here. Uh, your, your new article really jumped out at me. Here it said that it's funny that getting noticed is uncomfortable for many people. They don't like drawing attention to themselves. It's almost like we've been taught at an early age that it's somehow not right to do things that make us stand out in class. We think it's arrogant, narcissistic. Well, we need to get over that. What do you mean by that in terms of careers? Well, I mean, it's... It's always amazed me that uh, that people in their uh, in their jobs tend to try and do things like everyone else. I mean, the prescription is go to Google, figure it out, and look at boilerplates and templates, etc. And yet, the exact opposite is the truth, and that is, people need to find ways to actually separate themselves from the crowd, separate themselves from crowd thinking, be unique, and be individualistic. In my experience, that's always been the key to success, and yet. From an academic point of view and a kind of a societal point of view, we actually don't like that. We don't like the fact that certain people uh, do outrageous things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so, you know, m- my angst is to try and encourage people to fight against that, notwithstanding all those forces that want you to fit in. You need to fit out. You need to step out. You need to be out of step with people as, as opposed to being in step. And the people that I've seen succeed have been very, very successful doing that. There's too many people out there with incredible academic backgrounds that are not seeing their full potential reached. And in my view, that's the reason. Is it it's simply because you don't want to take a risk? I mean, I, I see it within you know this industry. I feel it myself some days where I just think I just don't want to be the tall poppy because yeah. that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, no question. I mean, it is risk-averse uh, sort of inaction. Um, but the thing for me is uh, you can take baby steps in this. Like one of the things I talk about is look at everything you do from a be-different lens, through a be-different lens. So what I used to do all the time is I'd get up in the morning and say, okay, what, what small thing am I going to do today that's going to be different than the way people would normally expect? And after a while, it became inculcated in my persona. I just did things that way. I would look for what people didn't expect as opposed to what people expected. Now, I'm not talking about being, you know, illegal or anything like that, but there's so many ways that you can step out and mitigate the risk and yet still honor the whole be different mantra. Uh, people just need to have that mindset, and, and people generally, Alan, don't have the mindset. You're a former executive vice president uh, at TELUS. In in that culture, you know, and some people who may be listening to us now are sort of in a corporate culture like that. In that culture, how do you stand out? What stood out to you for, you know, employees that you said, yes, okay, that's someone that that we should advance? So, first of all, a disclaimer. Um, I left TELUS in in 02, okay? So I'm not here talking about the culture of TELUS. But what what I can tell you is when I was a leader in TELUS, 
I actually encouraged people to do that. And it took a long time to actually get my colleagues at that time sort of comfortable with that notion because it's a hard one to, to sort of draw yourself out of tradition, right, and pedantic practices and be open, right, to somebody kind of like doing a crazy thing and being open to people trying a lot. And so it, it worked for me, but it was hard. And I don't suggest that it's going to be any easier in, in today's cultures, in today's organizations, because in my observation, the same things that prevent innovation, creativity, weirdness exist today just as much as they did 10, 15 years ago. The problem hasn't gone away. In fact, I would suggest it's probably, um, it's probably more um, accentuated today than it was then. Roy Osing is a writer for Globe Careers and is also the author of the book series Be Different or Be Dead. Roy, thank you so much for being on the program. You're very welcome, Alan. Enjoyed it. Such a, a lot to think about there, because isn't that true? We just, you know, when we come into work, we're like, I just, I just got to get through the day. I just got to, I know I do it all the time. I'm just going to slip in here. I'm going to sit down in my little veal fattening pen here, uh, my little cubicle. And that's, I mean, you know, you might think it's glamorous doing what I do, but no, there's just, it's, it's just like everybody else. I have my little workstation, uh, you know, in the little partition wall, and the little spot where I can put the picture of my kids. And that's about it. And then you think to yourself, you know, it's just it, it's just like everybody else working, and it's it's no different. And all of these things are the same. You think, I just got to get through the day, but maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe you should just toot your horn. Once upon a time in this great city of ours, if you were hungry, if you wanted to get something to eat and you're just walking down the street, your only opportunity was to get the street meat. That was it. All we had was bad hot dog carts in this city. And it seems like every time we try and move forward a little bit and get something a little bit more exotic, a little bit more representative of the city... Maybe, I don't know, a food truck? Are food trucks still a thing? Food trucks are still a thing. I just got back from Oakland, where food truck culture is a huge thing. People follow food trucks. They follow the Instagram of food trucks. They want to find out where the food trucks are. But here in Toronto, what is it we can't seem to get this going? And food truck owners say that current bylaw restrictions cost them a ton of money. Last year, Randy Kangle, the owner of Randy's curbside food truck, said, I had to pay the city $7,000 in tickets. These are the pay and display parking areas where, you know, 9.30 in the morning is the start time. Randy joins me in studio, live in studio. Randy, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Tell me about how difficult it is to operate a food truck in the city. Well, back in uh, 2014, the city uh, opened up uh, restrictions and allowing food trucks to vend. At that time, they gave us a uh, three hours vending time and uh, two trucks per block. Um, so they had a bylaw review back in 2015, which they reduced it to 30 meters away from the restaurant and uh, three, hour, three hours uh, 
to five hours. They give us five hours uh, vending. What we have learned that uh, in Toronto, you know, it's such a diverse of uh, food, uh, the different type of uh, people that is in the city. And um, we've been seeing a lot of challenges of putting our food trucks out because we're a short season and summer is really short. And, you know, it's parking enforcement. Uh, the, the restrictions are there. We're 30 meters away from the restaurant. So they're pushing us out further and further away from where we should be. And given the people that diverse of food and showing what Toronto really has to offer. What uh, does Randy's curbside food truck serve? Oh, we serve up the finest curry chicken rotis in the city. I love a roti. Oh, That's fantastic. But how is it that you're, a- are you able to actually turn a profit with these kind of restrictions and then having to shell out all of this money in tickets? So the name of the game here is First Come, First Serve. It's very difficult for us to uh, get in and find a, a parking spot that where customers can actually find us on a daily basis because if we're one minute late, according to the parking bylaw, we're out. So that means all our food, all our product, everything has gone to waste on that day. It's become very, very difficult for us now to with the traffic and trying to get in and out of the city, trying to get a, a, a prime parking spot and also trying to comply with the by, the bylaw of the restaurant restrictions. Now, the city has just been giving us a lot of tickets, you know, the parking in, because if we're not there before the parking time starts, we get a ticketed. So it's just like just before our day starts, you know, here's a fine $150 ticket. Just to start, no, just give me the sense of it, because I'm, I don't know if I'm following here. You have to be in a particular place at a particular time to be able to access that three-hour window? Correct. And what are the prime locations that all the food trucks are fighting for? So our prime locations, we have seen a lot of responses where the trucks are coming out is at a university and between the university and college and university and Dundas. It's a more heavy of a foot traffic where we are away from the restaurant uh, restrictions of that 30 meters. Now, there's a, a bylaw review. We are asking the city to um, to review the bylaw that, you know, has never been proven where a, a food truck has shut a restaurant down, and I'm also a restaurant owner. Um, you, you, you will see restaurant and restaurant next to each other competing, and there's not an issue. But a food truck being close to a restaurant, there it's creating an issue, which I don't think it, it, it will because... We have seen nothing but positive response because we bring more ambience, more vibes, and and more diversity in the street food. So, th- but you could see the the perspective of a mom and pop shop that have had a you know whatever Chinese Canadian restaurant right there on the corner, and then you know you pull up and you know you've got your Instagram, your social media, and there's a lineup at your truck, and they say, well, he's not paying the same kind of infrastructure money that I'm paying, the taxes in terms, you know, that sort of thing. Correct. And if you wanted to go to a restaurant with your family, you will go and sit down and have a restaurant. A food truck, we don't accommodate that. It's just a, a grab and go. We're just giving uh, more option on the different type of food and the, the vibes that we're bringing to the streets of Toronto. You talk about uh, University Avenue, and I I know it well because I used to work at Queen's Park all the time, and it's an absolute dead zone for food, and we would always, you know, wish, well, why can't we have food trucks around here? But can you even park up in that area around Queen's Park? No, so there's no parking on around Queen's Park. The parking is on University Avenue, so it's a very hectic place to get a parking spot, and you got to come. For example, the parking starts at 9.30 in the morning. We got to be there at least... Seven o'clock, circling the blocks. 
Just driving around. Just driving around looking and for around parking. and around. To it's got nothing to do with making food and making it, a great roti. It, it, it got nothing to do with that. That's just downtime. We got to be there just driving around and around. And if we're there just before 930, just waiting for the 930 parking meter to start, automatically we get a ticket. Now, by the time they ask us to leave, the parking enforcement comes and moves the truck out. We drive around. Somebody else pulls up. We lose that spot. So from 7 o'clock, we're just there hoping that things would work out in such a way that the food truck would be at that location for that vending period of time. Randy Kangle is a food truck owner. He's the owner of Randy's Curbside Food Truck. Randy, what would you ask of the city? What would you like the city to do? Uh, we would like to see a few things. We would want to see more vending time. We would, you know, Instead of uh, restricting our time, there, we'd like to have um, more than five hours vending time. We'd like to see... Right now, the current bylaw allows two truck per box. We would like to see four truck per box. And uh, we, instead of the 30 meters from the restaurant, we'll, you know, say 15, just to see on, on good faith that, you know, the trucks and the restaurants can get along and bring more diverse between. Uh, you know, the restaurant or you know, the restaurant association will just kick up a storm. hundred percent. The armor has been kicking up a storm. But, you know, we have been um, showing them that this is not what it is going to be. You know what I mean? Like uh, from a restaurant owner point of view, I've also... Um, scene where it can bring a great amount of traffic for both restaurants and food truck. Randy, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, can you just stay on the line here because we're doing a little something here that we like to end the show with, a little something called Rip and Read. And what we do here, uh, and Randy Kangal, of course, is the uh, owner of Randy's curbside food truck. So I think you'd probably know something about being a hype man. I need a hype man for this. I'm going to read some news copy that I've never seen before. They've given me some stories here, and I'm going to read them ice cold. Now, this is only for experienced anchormen uh, and anchors. you you got you to know what you're doing. Don't try this at home, folks. But hit me with a beat if you don't mind. We're just going to settle up here because, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rip and Read. Buried World War II bomb self-detonates and creates meteorized-sized crater outside German village. Around 4 a.m., residents of the central German town of Limburg awoke to what they thought was a meteor collision. Indeed, the following day, they found a crater measuring 33 feet wide, 13 feet deep, but local officials were able to confirm the crater was actually the result of a blast from an unexploded 550-pound bomb dating back to World War II. Boom. Boom. Tourists will be able to submerge 13,000 feet under the sea to the wreckage of the Titanic for $125,000. The tour is operated under private exploration company OceanGate. will bring passengers aboard their high-tech submersible Titan 13,000 feet under the sea to view the Titanic's wreckage and a seat on the extravagant voyage into the deep now goes for $125,000 a head. Would you do that, Randy? Boom. He's the king of the world. Crappy neighbor, it's likely we've all encountered that disruptive neighbor in our lives. Normally, neighborly disputes are settled with a simple chat, but one man in Taiwan dumped his own poop in an apartment water tank instead. Asia One reporting the 69-year-old man, simply known as Lin, leased part of his home to a telecommunications company. However, the equipment was installed without the knowledge. Agitated over the loss of income from this lease loss that he had, Lin decided to get even by contaminating the water's 
the apartment's water tank by allegedly pooping in it once a month. That's crappy. Discuss. That is crappy. Last one. Michigan man wins $80 million, must pay half to ex-wife. Oh, man, that stings. Michigan man who won the lottery during his divorce got taken by the cleaners by his ex-wife. He learned the decision of an arbitrator made him share half his $80 million when he won with his ex-wife. According to the Daily Mail, the winnings are the marital property and ruled losses throughout the marriage were incurred jointly, so winnings should be shared jointly. Randy, play us out. Give us a boom. Boom. Nice. (laughs) Randy Kangle, everybody. Boom.